Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Well, welcome, listeners. I'm so glad everybody's listening today. And I have a guest calling in from Hartford, Connecticut today. And I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Amy Sanders. And Amy is a neurologist. And she worked on a project that I was very, very interested in. I called her a couple weeks ago and said, Hey, (laughs) I think what you are doing is absolutely fascinating. I think my listeners would love to hear about it and asked her if she would be on the show. And Amy, thank you for gracing me today with being a guest and introduce yourself to my listeners. Well, first of all, Jill, thank you so much for having me. It's my my, my pleasure to have this uh, opportunity to talk to all of your listeners And as Jill said, my name is Amy Sanders, and at present, I am the medical director of a multidisciplinary clinic located just south of of Hartford, Connecticut, and we are a group of 10, six of us are clinicians, and we have some, we have four support staff. So I am a neurologist, I have a colleague who is a geriatric psychiatrist. I have, we work with a psychiatric APRN with a dementia-focused licensed clinical social worker, and we also have one and a half entire neuropsychologists all to ourselves. So uh, we are a bustling, busy clinic. We have seen over 2,500 patients in uh, the last fiscal year alone, and uh, it is I consider it a privilege, really, to be able to take care of older adults with cognitive impairment and dementia and the people who love them. Oftentimes, when people come to see us, we always require that a care partner be present at the visit as well. And many times, the care partner becomes almost like a second patient um, in, in the room and often needs at least as much, and sometimes more help and guidance than the the patient him or herself needs. Oh, I love that. Yeah. You know, and it is important that we treat the whole family, isn't it, Amy? Absolutely. Um, As the expression goes, I associate this most recently with Hillary Clinton, but I think it has deeper, longer roots, but it takes a village. (laughs) It really takes, you know, a lot of people to um, make the process go well. And I think the goal of everybody who works with this particular population, the, the goal is always to help the person with dementia live the best quality life that they can possibly live. And a lot of people don't think that's possible, but I'm here to tell you today, it absolutely is. Well, I will tell you, my caregiver nation, that is my listeners all over the world, believe that inherently. It's just something that we find is super important to the fabric of our being and that we take care of the people that we love and we learn the best practices and the best strategies and techniques we can. I have a question for you. As you were speaking, you talked about the different specialties in your office. And I think that's really, really striking and important. I get a lot of questions about people who go to their general practitioner and and 
expect that that general practitioner is going to understand about the various dementia diseases and so on and so forth. And I always say, ask for a referral to a neurologist. So you have geriatrics, you have a psychiatric doctor as well. Explain why that's important. Well, as I said, it does take a village. And that applies not only to living with um, any kind of dementia, but also, in, in my opinion, to the diagnostic process. Many times, due to exigencies of, of time and maybe sometimes also interest, diagnoses get made in the primary care setting on the basis of what is usually a fairly rudimentary history and a rudimentary assessment. Mm-hmm. And dementia is complex and intricate and does not really lend itself to that kind of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. The, in my opinion, the preferred way to make the diagnosis is uh, really to do a rigorous investigation into what is going on with the person. And my sort of conceptualization of this is that it's a, a research quality diagnosis that, that we have the privilege of being able to offer in a clinical setting. So every, pretty much everybody, not every single person, but the majority of people who come to see us with a, a legitimate cognitive concern will come for a first visit. That usually takes anywhere from 75 to 90 minutes, sometimes even longer, depending on the complexity of the history and the complexity of the medical problems that a person has the complexity of the medications that they might be on. Mm -hmm. So we gather a lot of information at that first visit. Then we usually ask people to have a little bit of blood drawn. Um, If they do not have any obvious contraindications, we ask them to have a brain MRI done, and we have some special things that we want to look for on the MRI. And then we also want them to have a neuropsychological assessment. So a full neuropsychological assessment is going to examine in, in pretty great detail a person's ability to use attention, to use memory, to use language, to be able to reason abstractly and solve problems, and to interpret visual and spatial information. That is a lot more than can be accessed and evaluated on a simple test like the mini mental state exam or the mini cog or the, 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 the MOCA, which is now the, the test that's probably taken over the world. I think it's going to be doing my taxes next year. Uh, so um, those are screening assessments. Mm-hmm. And it's a general precept in medicine that if a person gets a screening evaluation and they fail it, you don't, the next step is not to make a diagnosis. The next step is to proceed to confirmatory testing. So we conceive of our neuropsychological evaluation as being kind of confirmatory testing to ascertain really, is there a problem? And if so, what is the nature of that problem? And Mm -hmm. so we need all of the people who we have working in our clinic to contribute to that process. So I, as a neurologist, see new patients. My colleague, the geriatric psychiatrist, also sees new patients. Once patients have finished the diagnostic evaluation, usually they're followed um, in the long term by our psychiatric APRN, and then we have the neuropsychologist to perform the testing and our specially focused LCSW uh, to 
provide all of the extra uh, advice and tender loving care that our patients and their loved ones need. Oh, I love that. And, you know, some of the problems that we see with a diagnosis is that there are so many other comorbidities that could be at play. We, You have to look through, are they depressed? Are there any other psychiatric issues? Is it hard to come to a a good, solid diagnosis, even with all of the diagnostic tools you just mentioned? I think most of the time we can give a good diagnosis, a diagnosis that that we believe is uh, substantiated by the evidence that we have collected. Mm-hmm. And that, that process of evidence collection is extremely important because we don't want to make the wrong diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I have seen people who have been diagnosed with sometimes, one case that springs immediately to mind is somebody who was diagnosed with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, mm-hmm. among the most difficult of the dementias to live a high-quality life while, while having it. Right. And he was diagnosed elsewhere and came to us. He had been told, actually, by his neurologist that he should put his affairs in order, and he had five to seven years to live. So he and his wife sold their house. They moved into a congregate living um, situation. And then he came to us and had neuropsychological testing. And not only did he not have any dementia, he, he barely even qualified for a diagnosis of, a, of what we think of as a pre-dementia state called mild cognitive impairment. Mm-hmm. And we've seen other people. I, I saw a woman uh, just in the last couple of months, young, in her early 50s had been diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's disease. I think she has epilepsy. Oh, wow. Okay. Diagnoses can be sort of wildly wrong if they're not made with the necessary attention to the complexities that that someone may face and and just to doing the, the due diligence of really asking all of the of the necessary questions and deeply exploring what's going on with the person. So it's not really sufficient to say, oh, you have a memory problem here, take this test. And all right, so you must have Alzheimer's disease. Here's a prescription for Dinepazil. Come back and see me in a year. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot. Right. And I really wish that it didn't. I I wish that as well. You know, one of the other groups that that listen to my show and that I work with are people with posterior cortical atrophy. Do you see much of that in your practice? It's a syndrome of Alzheimer's, apparently? We see much of it. No. It's a fairly uncommon mm-hmm. um, sort of subvariant, perhaps, mm-hmm. of Alzheimer's disease. I mean, it's considered to be a, a variation on the theme of Alzheimer's disease. And right. one of the things that we know about Alzheimer's disease is that the pathology doesn't always begin and expand through the brain according to what is the usual pattern. Mm-hmm. There are certainly exceptions to that rule. And um, posterior cortical atrophy, or PCA, is definitely a, an exception to that rule. Um, it has recently, let's see if I do the math, within the last five years, had its own set of consensus diagnostic criteria published, and I believe maybe even updated once. Mm-hmm. Um, don't quote me on that last bit. <laughs> but um, it is it is an oddball kind of um, diagnosis because... Patients who have it do not generally present with complaints about forgetfulness or or memory loss. 
they usually get to the to the dementia neurologist on a very circuitous route mm-hmm. because they usually they think there's there's something wrong with their vision. Right. So they'll go to an eye doctor, often mm-hmm. an optometrist, who finds no problems and says, okay, well then you probably should go to an ophthalmologist who finds no problems, and then says, well maybe you should go to a neuro ophthalmologist. And sometimes then it's the neuro ophthalmologist that kind of can figure out get a, a, a hint. Um, of, of what might actually be the underlying problem, and that's when they get referred to us. Right. So before coming to, to work in Connecticut, I worked in central New York, um, and in a small department of about 35 people, we actually had two neuro-ophthalmologists. Now, neuro-ophthalmologists are, are fairly uncommon. They're not mm-hmm. quite unicorns, but they're pretty rare. <laughs> so to have it a, a small department that was almost 10% neuro-ophthalmologists was uh, pretty uncommon, and um, so I wound up seeing um, a fair number of patients with PCA when I was in New York. And um, I, I've seen a handful um, also here in Connecticut. So we certainly see it, but, it, but it's not common. But if, you don't, if you're not aware of it, if you're not thinking about it and sort of ready to respond to a clue that a patient might mention without thinking much about it, but if, if, if you know what to listen for, sometimes you can hear you can hear the story that's actually, you know, underlying everything. And, and that, was, that was how I diagnosed or, or got my patient who I think has epilepsy to a possible diagnosis of, of epilepsy. I thought she was having seizures, and I referred her to a colleague who um, is an epileptologist. Well, uh, that is a classic example. Both of those are classic examples of how, uh, I think, dynamic and misunderstood and difficult and varying these dementias can be. So I really have to say I, I, I applaud all your efforts to try to get to the bottom of this the best you can. I want to shift gears now to the care partners, the caregivers, like my caregiver nation out there. And you've done a pretty significant amount of work at looking into how to help those caregivers in the world. And I actually found you (laughs) when I was looking up literary reviews and saw that you actually chaired a committee to talk about 15 dementia measures that should, or at least in 2015, dementia measures that could um, be updated and, and really focused on to see how we can change the trajectory of how we work with caregivers. And what got you to work on this committee? What what brought it up? How did you start the committee? And how did you end up chairing it? It's actually kind of a funny story. So when I was very newly out of training and was, quite frankly, having a very hard time thinking of myself as the noun neurologist rather than as as neurology being the adjective. I'm the neurology re- uh, resident mm-hmm. or I'm the fellow. Uh, suddenly I was the noun and um, had to live up to it. And here I am starting my own dementia practice. And I suddenly, you know, it was not something on which I had had much formal or really any clinical training. I had, I had been exposed to a little bit of research, but had not done much clinical training in the, the, in taking care of, of, uh, older adults with cognitive decline and dementia and, and their care partners. And so I was looking for something that could be my guide to the perplexed. Um, and 
lo and behold, out of the clear blue sky, as these things sometimes happen, I got an email from the American Academy of Neurology saying that they were convening a working group to put together a set of clinical quality measures for the management of dementia. Mm -hmm. And I thought, Eureka! <laughs> and I applied, and I heard nothing for months and months and months. And then I decided, okay, well, I guess I didn't, I didn't make the cut. And then, once again, out of the clear blue sky, I got an email saying, well, we ran into some hiccups, but, you know, if you're still interested, we'd love to invite you to, to come to Chicago for the, the kickoff um, meeting. And it was a day-long meeting um, of a multidisciplinary working group that included neurologists, uh, geriatricians, occupational therapists. I think there was a pharmacist. Um, there may have been a physical therapist. I mean, this is going back now more than 10 years. So mm -hmm. um, uh, I, don't, I don't have a completely eidetic memory of, of exactly what the composition of the working group was. But, and... Um, as it turns out, whenever I am a member of a committee, <clears throat> I have a hard time keeping my mouth shut. <laughs> and so I spoke up, even though I was the most junior person at the table. I, I, when I had something that I thought, you know, was important, I, I raised my hand and I said it. And some of the people from the American Academy of Neurology who were involved with what was at that time called the Quality Measure and Reporting Committee noticed and they invited me to join that committee. Mm -hmm. And the brief of that committee, it now has a different name and, and slightly different committee structure, but that doesn't matter. Uh, the brief of that committee was, was to help neurologists create quality measures that would be written by neurologists for neurologists. So uh, in modern medicine these days, there are a lot of reporting mechanisms that are, are used sort of to rate the performance of physicians. And I'm not talking here about the kind of survey that your doctor's office sends you after every visit. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, if you want to do your doctor a favor, don't put anything less than the highest possible ranking for any of the scores. Anything other than a five counts as nothing. Just a little tip. Mm. So uh, I was um, invited to, to start um, working um, on this committee to make these, these quality measures. And quality measures are sort of a guide to what should be done in the process of giving good care. And the initial um, set of quality measures was published in, in 2013, and it was then updated. Uh, in, we started meeting in, in 2015. There were a couple of delays that, so that it wound up the paper didn't get published until I think it was 2017. There was another update. The American Academy of Neurology tries to update each measurement set roughly every three years. So there was another update. While I was still on the committee, I have since rotated off. Uh, so I'm not directly involved in the work any longer. But as my understanding is that um, a, a third update of the original uh, measurement set is in process uh, even as we speak. Okay. And uh, what what really struck me when I was reading the, I guess it was the second update then um, that's about 57 pages long, is that it looks at, at different issues that are not normally in your neurology toolbox, right? Or your doctor's bag, if you will. <laughs> and by that, I mean, you're not usually on the side of having to look at whether or not someone uh, has all the tools to do what they need to do at home or um, 
dealing with the driving issues. Are they able to drive well or not? Or, um, you know, just even uh, care counseling for families. Years ago, things like that would never happen. We've got a changing scope of neurology today. I I think that's very, very true. And um, I actually have a colleague who is a little bit older than I am, um, and I'm a terrible judge of age, so I can't really say how much older he is, but he's, I think he's older than I am. And uh, at the beginning of his career, he worked at an Alzheimer's disease research center and saw a lot of patients there as, as part of his um, training and, and his fellowship. But that was in the 1980s. And the way that diagnoses were made then, uh, what, what was known about what dementia does to a person and the ripple effect that it has through the lives of of entire families was certainly not well appreciated. And to the extent that it, over the intervening years, has become a little bit more appreciated in the sense of, of we've become cognizant of it, it's still often not considered to be real doctor's work. You know, because you're not doing a, a procedure, you're not operating on anybody, you're not injecting anything, you're not... Um, you know, prescribing the, the newest, most fancy medication that's, that costs $100,000 a year. It's, 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 you know, kind of in the trenches dealing with the consequences of this, of this really difficult disease. Mm-hmm. I think in neurology, a really good model that we haven't in dementia much, had much success emulating is what happens with um, ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, right. amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And good ALS clinics are, you know, they have the the occupational therapist is there, the speech therapist is there, the physical therapist is there, the social worker is there, the physician is there. I mean, it's really a a, a team approach to what is seen as as a devastating disease. Well, as devastating as Lou Gehrig's disease might be to the body, dementia is to the brain and the mind. Mm hmm. So, you know, that's really the, the model that, that we should be trying to emulate is that, that, that full scope of care. I agree because, you know, I think that one point you and I can absolutely agree on is that the way that we approach a person with Alzheimer's can change the trajectory of the journey that they're going to be on. And I try to tell families Listen, the way you use your communication skills will help that person to feel loved and supported and not as fearful as they would be of what is happening to them. And in the past, we would not have received attention in that area from a doctor's visit. And today... Again, what really struck me about the piece that you worked on was as I looked at it, I I would see the processes that you were looking at, like um, screening and following up with your patients and um, looking at advanced care planning and palliative care planning and pain assessment down the line and how can we communicate with them. And these were things that that doctors just didn't really focus on in the past. How do you how do you bring those two together? How do you find time in your office with all the diagnostic measures that we talked about in the beginning and then 
following up on everything that is happening, even what medications they are taking and, you know, the the status exams that that are following up in the end. It's such a big job. Well, it's true. It is a big job. And within the ranks of the of the medical profession, I think it's still um it, it's hard to explain to many physicians physician assistants, advanced practice RNs, exactly what it is that we do and why it is so important that we do it to the detail that we do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm often chastised for taking too much time with my patients and writing notes that are, are, are too long and, and too comprehensive. Oh, my and gosh. You know, I'll admit I perhaps have a bit of a tendency toward perfectionism, but I think that in order to give good care to older adults with cognitive decline and dementia, this this level of attention to detail is absolutely fundamental. Well, it's so, not only fundamental, but just getting that accurate evaluation and increasing that patient and their caregiver's awareness of what is happening, it, it baffles the mind why anyone would challenge you on something like that. It feels to me like in 2022, you know, many, many years after the very first diagnosis of Augusta Dieter, we should be at this place. Do you feel like uh, you're on the frontier here and kind of trying to fight through the red tape and bureaucracy? Or do you feel like this is a wave sweeping the nation? I would have to say that I still feel a little bit as though I'm on the frontier. Yeah. I think that progress certainly has been made over the the, the recent decades. And there are, there are now some clinics, full, completely only clinical practices that, that are able to, to focus on dementia. In I think a lot of people who have an interest in dementia wind up going into research mm-hmm. because it's very difficult to make a success of a dementia practice without a lot of research funding. Right. Dementia care does not make any money. Mm-hmm. I said earlier, you know, we're not operating on anybody. We're not sticking needles into anybody for any reason. So we do not do any procedures. Right. And the way that modern medicine is configured, it is still procedures that earn the biggest bucks and the biggest amount of, of respect from the people in what's known as the C-suite, mm-hmm. you know, the people who wear the suits and make all the big decisions. And, um, you know, we're not sexy. Right. But boy, are we important. Oh, I couldn't agree more. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to dive deeper into this very subject. We'll be right back. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. 
We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988, to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. All right, I'm back with Dr. Amy Sanders. And Amy, I'm so glad to have you on the show today because you, like the doctors here at the University of Colorado Hospital, have a very, I think, huge outlook a different a different uh, opinion or perspective on the way you work with your families it's you've taken it from being a situation where you know you give somebody a diagnosis after spending 15 20 minutes with them and their family doing most of the talking and sending them on their way and they sit in their car and they in their car and they cry and they come back a year right. later when they have a symptom that they don't know how to handle and usually it's all focused on the caregiver to now looking really, really strongly, really intensely at the family dynamic and taking more time in getting a good diagnosis and being able to give families the most comprehensive care you can give them. When I called you to talk to you, the reason I was... Uh, bringing this forth was because I have been providing in-home assessments as a non-medical person to the neurologist I work with here at the University of Colorado Hospital for the last six and a half years. And so what I do is I go into a home and I try to help the families live with the diagnosis they have just received and to uh, build a quality of life and say to them, this isn't what it used to be back in the day when you would get a hardening of the arteries or senility diagnosis and they send you home crying. Today we say, all right, what can we do to maintain our brain? How can we train your caregivers to have effective communication with you? How can they understand that they bring energy to the table and you will mirror that energy and feed off of that energy. So we have to change the approach that we have with that person. Why can't we have joy with this disease? I believe we can. And can we change the way a person is um, having their nutritional intake? Will that make a difference in their diagnosis? I absolutely believe it will. And so those kinds of things I have brought to the neurology department here at UCH. And I so wish you were here in Denver because I would love to work with you. And I feel like um, what we're doing here is a very innovative approach to care. And I just want your thought on that. Um, I think, so I was on a a different kind of committee um, uh, about 10 years ago. 
and it was a multidisciplinary committee. Once again, there are always multidisciplinary committees these days. But um, and and the question before us was whether um, we would recommend that amyloid PET imaging become a covered procedure under Medicare. Mm-hmm. And the committee decision was not to support um, that uh, amyloid PET would become something that Medicare would cover. There was, there was one loud dissenting voice, and I'm guessing you might be able to guess who that was. <laughs> but during the course of the, of the committee deliberations, a neurosurgeon on the panel said, I don't know why we're spending all the time, all this time and money to, to talk about this. A person gets dementia, you put them in a nursing home, and that's the end of the story. Oh. And that was something that, that I will never forget. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 to this day, believe that I earned a gold star dinosaur sticker because I did not <laughs> the man in the mouth, which was very much what I wanted to do. Um, I mean, I was appalled, appalled at the, the, the hostility and the lack of care in, in that kind of statement. Right. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I do think that we, we, need a, we need consciousness raising. We need a paradigm shift in the way that, that we, um, you know, approach our, our, our elders um, you know, who are suffering with this, with this disease. And, and it's, it's, it's not just in developing better medicines. It's, it's about how to prevent it and then also how to live one's best life if you, if you have it. And I absolutely, with every cell in my body, believe that it is possible to live a good life with Alzheimer's disease, the other dementias also, um, you have to make a few changes and, and accommodations, and you have to be flexible, and you have to be open-minded. Um, and um, that often, those, all of those descriptions often fall on the caregiver in a way that is, you know, uh, two, three times maybe what it is on the, on, on the patient. Uh, but the most important part of the care paradigm is not the doctor. It's not the pills. It's the care partner and the people who they then, then teach how to, you know, this is, this is what my grandma's version of Alzheimer's disease looks like. Because every person who gets a disease like Alzheimer's disease has their own unique version of it. There is no universal playbook. Do you think it's fair to say that we... I, I know you and I do, and I and I think that there's a handful of people across the country that do, but I'm hoping that that paradigm is shifting to no longer thinking, let's just put that person in a home. Today, we literally look at everything going on in that person's life and how can we make it better for them, and we're seeing people live really good lives. We're looking at that housewife uh, who raised her children and was the PTA mom, and we're still celebrating her even when she's in mid-stage. And we, I mean, I just, I feel, I, I feel I, hopeful. I would submit to you that might, that might be the most important time mm-hmm. to do that sort of celebrating. Well, it is. And I, I really hope that we're going to get to a day where, you know, we think that it's as important to spend time um, 
doing every radical thing we can think of to find a cure for Alzheimer's like we did for the pandemic. You know, I mean, every t- every time we turned around, science, somebody in the science world was talking about how can they find a vaccine or what have you. I wish that we could change the world to care more about people with Alzheimer's because we can make a difference. We can make the journey better. I see people every single day. I have them on my show that talk about, you know, moving out of their their big house and into a continuum care uh, cottage so that they can go and, and shoot pictures of wildlife and take walks on the Ralston Creek and do fun things uh, that we never would have thought a person with Alzheimer's could possibly be doing, you know, mid-stage disease. So, you know, you talked about People going into research because you don't have procedures. Uh, Have you gone into research? How have you stayed on the forefront being a neurologist that is, is out there really in the front lines with the people that have this disease and their caregivers without having to fold into the research? Not that that's a bad thing, but, I mean, we need doctors like you on the forefront. Well, I think my, my career has always embodied in, in varying proportions depending on, on where I was. But there's always been a, a, a little bit of research, um, uh, certainly research, uh, teaching, and, um, and, and, and clinical practice have, have always been components of, of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in my, my current position, it, it is the most heavily focused on, on clinical practice. And um, it's I think it's important because there's always so much research happening. I mean, people may think, well, nothing has happened in Alzheimer's disease for, you know, decades. It's, it's not really true. It's not true. We certainly don't have, the, we don't have the magic medication just yet, although I do think we're creeping incrementally closer mm-hmm. to something that really might make a, a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. But we've learned so much about how the disease affects people, the differential ways in which it affects people, the ways that it might be possible to prevent the disease. Mm-hmm. And over the course of, of my career, and I've, I've been doing this for, for not quite 15 years, I think the, the emphasis has moved from we need, a, we need a medication so that we can retard the progress of this disease or, or cure it to, look, we need to move back earlier in the lifespan and really start making efforts to prevent cognitive decline and dementia. Mm, I agree. And um, once upon a time, and I, I tell my patients this, I mean, I had this conversation with somebody just this morning. You know, there are, uh, you know, five, five things that people can do to live a cognitively healthy lifestyle that are, are, are easy and they sound like they're simply common sense. Once upon a time, that was the only basis for making these kinds of, for me giving this kind of advice was, was common sense. Mm-hmm. Increasingly now, though, an evidence base is building. So, there, you know, some of the things are, are, are kind of no-brainers. Gee, don't smoke. Right. If you're going to drink alcohol, doing so in moderation can actually be salubrious. It can be good for you. Mm-hmm. So... 
It has to be in moderation. That means no more than, than, than two drinks per day for a man and no more than one drink per day for a woman. Red wine is best. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you'd think in this kind of puritanical prescriptive way that, that physicians often have about them that, you know, it would be, oh, no, you can't drink at all. Well, not true. Uh, so, it, it, you know, a moderate amount of alcohol consumption can actually be part of dementia prevention. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once somebody has developed a dementia, it can also be, you know, an aperitif can lead to a more enjoyable meal. And then people might eat more, which is often an issue, but I digress. So in in addition, um, people should try to eat as much of what is called a Mediterranean diet as possible. It's not really a diet because you're not counting anything. It's a style of cooking. Mm -hmm. You're not using Crisco. You're using olive oil. You're having more fish than beef and more legumes like beans and lentils than than potatoes. Mm -hmm. The style of cooking, and it can accommodate any preferences, so... Mediterranean diet for the vegan, Mediterranean diet for the outdoor grill. Mm-hmm. You get where I'm going. Right. Doing some kind of physical exercise and doing some kind of cognitively stimulating activities as frequently as you can do them, especially for the latter. Mm-hmm. Regarding exercise, and, and this is my, my, one of my favorite research um, reports ever, so a lot of times, the, and I see this in, in, in notes from, from some of my, my, my uh, uh, colleagues, especially in geriatrics, um, you know, patients instructed to exercise three times a week for at least 50 minutes each time. So this past summer at the big annual Alzheimer's Disease International Conference, a report came out of South America of a big, and I mean like 10,000 uh, participants a big study of individuals with mild cognitive impairment, which is sort of the pre-dementia state. Right. And they divided these 10,000 people with mild cognitive impairment into a group that would exercise vigorously, 50 minutes of vigorous exercise three times a week, a group that would exercise not really at all, they wouldn't change any of their, their, their standard activities, and then kind of a middle group, <clears throat> excuse me, that did um, not such vigorous exercise, but did stretching and yoga and um, that sort of thing. And the mm-hmm. expectation was that the non-exercisers would decline much more rapidly than the vigorous exercisers, and that probably the people who did yoga and gentle stretching would look more like the non-exercisers than the vigorous exercisers. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? The people who did a little bit of stretching, a little light yoga, got as much benefit from that as the people who were exercising much more vigorously. So... As somebody who's much more prone either to go for a nice swim or do a little yoga and light stretching than I am to go jogging, um, mm-hmm. thanks, Mom, for the early onset arthritis in my knees. No running for me. Um, <laughs> but it, it doesn't matter how much you move or how you move. It matters that you move. And the same thing applies to cognitively stimulating activities. It doesn't matter what you do. And for God's sake, please do not go out and buy some, some um, you know, prepackaged cognitive training program, most of which have been, you know, gotten actually into regulatory trouble for over-promising and under-delivering. So you don't have to do any special. There's no, there's no magic skill set that you need to develop in order to um, be cognitively active. Read a book. Listen to a symphony. Have a political argument with somebody. 
go square dancing, go ballroom dancing. We can do that in some places now because the pandemic is maybe a little bit receding. Uh, do crossword puzzles, do Sudoku, um, do the daily Wordle, which I think of as my daily cognitive vitamin. Um, <laughs> once again, it, it doesn't matter what you do, it matters that you do. And if you can manage to pull off four of those five things, you can reduce your, your chances of developing later dementia by extraordinary margins. I mean, into the, like the 50, you can reduce by 50%, by 60%. No, the numbers you know, lie in, in that range. Um, so midlife preventive strategies are, are incredibly important. And in the long run, I, I think are probably going to have as much impact or at least have the potential to have as much impact as any medication that anyone might prescribe. Well, and as you said earlier, things are changing. And and what you just said is absolutely, you know, pushing forward, having increased patient and, and caregiver awareness just about other therapeutic options. You just named about 20 of them, right? <laughs> and all of those things, if people will adhere to just a little bit of watching what they're eating or or just doing a little bit like you were saying, let your mind uh, expand and, and keep pushing forward, you're going to improve your quality of life. Right? And caregivers. Absolutely. Caregivers are going to feel a whole lot less stressed. They're not going to feel as burdened. People will feel like they have more of a part of their care plan. I think that's the biggest thing that I see. When somebody asks me, why does it matter to get a diagnosis? My answer to that, and you may have a different one, but my answer to that is if you find out what's going on, you could eliminate other issues that are going on that you could think could think uh, might be contributing to whatever your problem is. You can uh, kind of weed through all of that and get to the bottom line. That's the one thing. The second thing is you can be part of your care plan. Be part of the process of living a good life. There's no Absolutely. reason there's no reason why we can't. Right? Right. And, and I think and, that, and human, that decreases human beings have, have have their own individual agencies until we draw our last breath. Right. So we should be, you know, we should be able to contribute to the, to the decision-making, mm-hmm. um, you know, as, uh, as, as long as we're able. And, and that's, that's another important reason for, for early diagnosis is that, um, first of all, I mean, it, it removes the terror of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, it, it's hard to come into a dementia clinic to have an evaluation. I mean, it, it's, it's almost laughable, and I, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but, um, it, you know, people come to see us, and almost invariably at the first visit, their blood pressure is elevated. Right. And, and you know, because they're, they're nervous, they're anxious, they don't particularly want to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, my favorite type of visit to end my favorite kind of ending to a visit is, is, is when the patient says to me, you know, thank you so much. I was so scared and, and I feel better now. And I don't always get to that kind of apotheosis, but on the days when I manage it, um, I, I really feel like I've created an objective good in somebody's life. Well, and you know, you can see, you can see, um, how that directly impacts that person because you see less behavioral 
symptoms, I'm sure. Because once they feel like they're understood, they don't function from a place of fear as badly or as poorly. And family members, when they all feel like they're all talking on the same page and and you're not talking behind the person's back to another family member and so on and so forth, we find that their functions are better. Their activities of daily living are better. If you don't shut them out of the kitchen just because they caught, you know, a burner on fire one time, you still, you talk about it, you start working through it, and we make it part of the care plan of how you're going to assist that person with fixing a meal instead of just expecting them to do it by themselves. It's a whole different mindset. And I think it it has to do nothing but really maintain that person's dignity and make them feel like they are still a functioning part of society that is appreciated and still loved. I see families do so much better when they have meetings with doctors that practice the way you do. I, I think it's a, I, I, I think we need some evidence-based um, you know, exercises on this because I really think it makes a difference. I see a difference in the people that I work with. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, respecting dignity, individual agency. So, right, maybe your sister can no longer make the lasagna from scratch. But, you know, perhaps she could drain the noodles or maybe she can shred the cheese. Mm -hmm. Um, And if she can't do those things, maybe she can sit with you in the kitchen while you're cooking and she can, you know, sort some spices or, you know, do something with her hands that, that leaves the rest of her sort of free to interact with you. Um, so meeting a person where they are, respecting where they are, and, you know, offering them a helping hand instead of a scolding finger. I think is is just really, really important. That caregiver education and supporting the care partners is so huge. What what do you do in your office visits? How do you support the care partner? Well, first of all, I mean, acknowledging their role. And one thing I I do have to be careful about um, is sometimes it's, is easy to focus on the care partner and 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 not give the person with dementia sitting next to them the attention that they deserve. Right. And when I was uh, early in my career, but but not as early as you might think, and this does not redound to my greater glory. I was seeing a man and his his wife, and his his wife was in a, a fairly, you know. She was struggling. She was the care partner, and he was the patient, and she was really having a hard time. And so this visit was was largely, you know, she and I talking together about the issues that that she was experiencing. And finally, the poor gentleman got so annoyed with the both of us that he banged his hand on the table, and he said, you know what? I am sitting right here, Mm -hmm. and I would really appreciate it if you would talk to me instead of past me. I just wanted to sink through a hole in the floor. And and in in retrospect, though I remain horrified that that I drove the poor man to having to say that, 
um, I also thank him. You know, I mean, he taught me a very, very important lesson. And it's, so it's important to listen to, to all of the voices in the room. And, and one thing that I'm fairly convinced of, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to uh, be surprised one day, but I don't think there is any such thing as a naturally born caregiver. I have yet to meet somebody who always knows the right thing to do just naturally. That's mm-hmm. the bad news. Mm-hmm. The good news is the skills can be taught. Right. right. And boy, do they make a difference. This is some really powerful stuff. Um, so even, you know, simple things like um, not saying, gee, dad, what do you want for breakfast? And, 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 and dad's mind goes blank and, and, and he I don't know. You know, dad, it's breakfast time. Would you like me to make you an egg or would you prefer a bowl of cereal? Um, right. that's just, and, and, and I mean, you know, that's, that's, there's all kinds of terminology for it. it's the forced choice paradigm. And it always sounds mm-hmm. so, uh, so aggressive to me, but you know, just, just that minor little kind of change can make a huge difference. Well, you will in, be happy to know that that is what this podcast is all about. So Usually, every other show, I bring on a resource of some type, and then on the opposite shows, I give strategies. I give someone a strategy of what we're going to try to accomplish and then all the techniques to try to do that. Um, And through University of Colorado Hospital, I teach a class every single month. It's two hours where I help caregivers to learn those very skills that they need to care for somebody with joy and compassion and love. And if they can't do that, that's okay. But how to step away and let someone else do it or share the care if they need to so that we can all be successful. Because I think it's, like you said in the beginning, it takes a village and we're all doing the best we can, but we've come a long, long way. And it just warms my heart that I met you, and I know that out there on the East Coast, I've got somebody standing guard and and standing up for and caring for all of our friends with diagnosis. And I'm sure my listeners in your area are going to want to know how to get a hold of you. <laughs> Do you have any clothes? Do you have any closing thoughts? Um, I mean, I think the notion of of it takes a village is an important notion to keep in mind that there is no universal playbook, that that just because grandma's version of Alzheimer's disease went one way does not mean that my version of Alzheimer's disease is going to follow exactly in those footsteps. Right. And um, respecting dignity, Mm -hmm. slowing down, Sitting down when it's necessary. All of, all of these little things. It's a it's a collection of a million little things that um, can collectively really make an enormous difference and create an enormously positive impact on somebody's life. And 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 what greater gift is there? Right. And you are definitely doing that, Dr. Amy Sanders. And I'm so glad you graced us with your presence on the show today. Thank you so much for being on and giving your wisdom. And I think you gave some great ideas. 
for people to keep themselves he- healthy and happy. And can we get you on the show again sometime? Absolutely. I'd love to come back. Oh, thank you, Amy. Well, be well. Stay warm in Connecticut. And all you out there in Caregiver Nation know that I love you. I'm thinking of you. I enjoy your cards, your emails, your letters, and keep them coming. We will see you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.